Our Father, we thank you for this time. And we come to you as people who acknowledge our need for grace, who acknowledge how hungry we are for your word, and acknowledge that only your word can feed us with the power of your spirit working in us. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Christ, but beyond that, to, per- to also perceive our need for grace, for sustenance, for Jesus, that he would be glorified during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please... Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're still in John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 28 today. And you might think, wow, he's going crazy. He's covering 10 verses. Yeah, we're in a new section where we can cover uh, bigger sections of, uh, of text. Uh, but I've called this uh, sermon, Who Are You? Who are you? That's a simple question, isn't it? But in our day and age, it's actually something that has become just so complicated. As far as our culture is concerned, one of the most hateful, one of the most evil things that somebody can do is make assumptions about who somebody else is. And so it's practically hate speech in our day and age to assume someone's gender or to assume their culture or to assume their orientation or or their preferred personal pronouns. If you pay attention to what's going on in the world, you know that this is how things are right now. According to the culture, you're actually a bigot if you assume that somebody is a male just because they have a beard and a Y chromosome, because they might feel like a woman. In our day and age, they they might identify as a dog or even a dragon. And there are actually people out there who not only think that this is normal, not only think that this is good, but think that it's beautiful. In an article in Psychology Today magazine from 2014, uh, an article said this. It said, quote, few people choose their identities. Instead, they simply internalize the values of their parents or the dominant cultures. Sadly, these values may not be aligned with one's authentic self and create unfulfilling life, end quote. And so the idea is that we are all on a quest to find our authentic self in order that we might find fulfillment by looking in ourselves and aligning our true selves with what we identify ourselves as. And as Christians, this is something that we soundly reject We reject this because it is clearly not biblical. Last week, we saw that Christ is preeminent, that he is the one in whom we can find the answers to our deepest needs and our deepest questions, our deepest longings. Ultimate fulfillment is not found by looking within ourselves. Ultimate fulfillment is found by looking to Jesus Christ. But I want to take this one step further. I'm going to be bold today and take this one step further. Let me assert something even more controversial than that. Here's the truth about individual identity that the world needs to hear but will unquestionably reject, and that is this. No person can truly come even close to understanding who they are unless they know who Jesus is. Let me say that again. Nobody can come even close to knowing who they truly are unless they know who Jesus is. Now think about that for a moment. Write it down or something. Spend some time in deep thought about that this afternoon when you go home. No person can truly come close to understanding who they are unless they know who Jesus is. Now if I could make a suggestion for the modern church... I would say that churches, by and large, need to return to the writings of the Reformers and the Puritans and stop uh, going to the Christian bookstores and finding what's on the the bestseller list. 
The Puritans and the Reformers had things like this figured out, things that the modern church and even conservative seminaries, I use that term very loosely, are missing the mark on. And one of the greatest Reformers, obviously, was John Calvin. Uh, I just told you that no person can truly come close to understanding who they are unless they know who Jesus is. Well, John Calvin actually taught the same thing. In book one, chapter one of his Institutes collection, which, by the way, is enormous, but he starts with this. He starts out by noting the connection between one's knowledge of God and one's knowledge of the self, writing that, quote, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself, end quote. And he'd go on to write, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You see, our pride, what he's saying here is that our pride and our our vanity uh, prevent us from seeing not only how insignificant we are, but how lacking in wisdom, how lacking in upright and goodness we are. It's only when we start to even get just the slightest glimpse of how good and how holy and how righteous and how pure God is that we even start to understand how corrupt and lacking in all these qualities we as human beings are. Apart from knowing God, we have absolutely no clue as to how corrupt and how lacking in wisdom and understanding we are. So, of course, we don't know ourselves until we see those things within ourselves. And we can't see those things within ourselves until we see who God is. And where are all these things revealed most fully? In Christ. In Jesus Christ. He is the fullest revelation of God. Now, one of the characters that we've learned about in this opening section of John that we've been studying is a man by the name of John the Baptist, or if you're a Presbyterian, I guess you call him John the Baptizer, uh, which is fine. Uh, Either term works. Either term, you could translate it either way, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. The focus in the passage that we'll be looking at today is, is somewhat on him, uh, but he doesn't want the attention is what we're going to see. He, in fact, deflects attention to himself as quickly as he can. But what we're going to see is that John knew who he was, but the reason that he knew who he was is because he knew who Jesus was. To put it another way, because John the baptizer knew who Jesus was, he knew who he was. And because he knew who he was, he was used greatly by God to do God's work of evangelism, of pointing others to Christ. And similarly, the point of this passage for us is that we must know who Jesus is in order that we may know who we are, in order that we too, like John, may be used by God to point others to Christ. So with our study last week, we looked at verses 15 to 18, and with those verses, we finished the section that's commonly known as the prologue, uh, the introduction of uh, the Apostle John's testimony about Jesus. It was indeed, I would say those 18 verses are the richest section in all of Scripture when it comes to Christology. That is, when it comes to understanding who Jesus is, what his nature is, what his essence is. We saw his eternality. We saw that he's the source of light and life. We saw all these great things about Jesus, all packed into just 18 verses. But we also saw in the prologue, about midway through, we were introduced to John the baptizer. And we saw three things about him. Number one, we saw that he is not the light. Number two, that he had been sent by God to bear witness to the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that three people would believe in Jesus. Now it's interesting to note that this sets the outline 
actually, for the next portion of the text. In our passage today, he'll deny that he is the light. That was the first thing that John told us about in the prologue about John the Baptist. Then in verses 29 to 34, he bears witness to the light. And then in the remainder of the chapter, we're going to see the fruit of John's witness as the first disciples start to believe in and follow Jesus. So let's look at the passage together, starting with verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, it says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So, with the end of the prologue in verse 18, verse 19 pushes us and launches us in a completely different direction. The first 18 verses are loaded with Christological doctrine, uh, but from here on out, it's almost entirely uh, biographical narrative or, or historical narrative. The Apostle John starts this section by telling us about the first seven days leading up to Jesus' public ministry. So this is the first day. And on this first day, we'll see John the Baptist denying his own significance. On the second day, verses 29 to 34, we're going to see John identify Jesus as the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. On the third day, we're going to, uh, which is verses 35, and, uh, 35 to 39, we're going to see that two of John the Baptist's disciples start to follow Jesus. On the fourth day, verses 40 to 42, Andrew brings his brother Peter to come and see Jesus. On the fifth day, 43 to 51, Jesus invites Philip to follow him, and Philip invites Nathaniel uh, to, to join him. Uh, Then the journey to Galilee takes place on the sixth day. On the seventh day, going into chapter 2 now, we see Jesus perform his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And you might wonder, well, why why map all that out? Why does that even matter? Well, I'd say it's it's just really interesting to see the way that John has already... um, made several parallel uh, things to the Genesis account, the creation account in Genesis, but here he actually adds, you could argue, another parallel. Um, In in Genesis chapter 1, we go through what? The days of creation, right? Seven days of creation. And in John's account, we go through seven days leading up to the beginning of Christ's public ministry when he would make known the reality of a new creation, But these seven days leading up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry start with John, the the apostle, the author, telling us about an encounter that John the Baptist had with some priests and Levites from Jerusalem who had been sent by the religious leaders to figure out what John was up to. Uh, That's what John the apostle, the author, had in mind when he says that they were sent by the Jews. Uh, If you look down at verse 24, we see that they were actually sent by the Pharisees. So this term the Jews uh, refers to what we see in verse 24, the Pharisees. It's also possible and and probably likely that this this committee or this delegation was something of um, a religious leader's response uh, to all the people who were going out into the wilderness to see this wild man who ate nothing but locusts and honey. Uh, In in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we're told what John the baptizer was doing and and who was coming out to see him. In in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this. We read, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all of the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, we should remember, as all these people are are flooding out into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist, we should remember what the context is in, uh, in Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem. Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. Uh, in, in fact, they, they were subservient to the Roman Empire. There was an expectation, though, by the people, uh, by, by the Jews at this time, that the Messiah would come and that he would not only uh, be their leader, but that he would free them from physical oppression, uh, that he would free them from uh, the tyranny of the Roman Empire. 
And so as this committee or this delegation arrives, they, they ask the question that I started with today, who are you? Who are you? And John the Apostle tells us that John the Baptist immediately let them know that he wasn't the Christ. Apparently, he understood that that's what they would be expecting. So right off the bat, he wants them to know, I am not the Christ. He wasn't the one that they were looking for. He wasn't the Messiah. And it would have been easy enough for him, and it probably would have been tempting for him to make the claim that he was, given the size of his following uh, and given that history uh, records for us that there were several people around this time who were claiming to be the Messiah. So that was a temptation, I'm sure, that he faced because there would have been a lot of power and a lot of prestige involved in making that claim. Now, this might seem like no big deal to us that he would say, I am not the Christ, but it actually tells us quite a bit about John when we understand that one of the greatest temptations that any one of us faces is to convince ourselves that we are our own Savior. See, we're so inclined to think that we're good, that we're good enough. And the only reason we face that temptation is because we're so thoroughly corrupted. We are radically corrupted by the effects of sin and influenced for the worst by pride and because we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. As, as somebody who, who resells clothes, I, I resell clothes. If you, I, I know this, that if you, if you take a garment that has just slight oil stains, small oil stains, and you put it under a yellow light, uh, it's really hard. It'll be difficult, if not impossible, to even notice those stains. But if you bring it out into the sun, or if you even put it under a white light, those stains are immediately evident. In the same way, when we see how humanity and how, uh, how, how wicked some people are, it's easy to compare ourselves to them and not compare ourselves to God. It's very easy to not see how we ourselves are so tainted, are so corrupted, are so affected so deeply by the effects of sin See, if you you dwelled in a cave, for example, you would think that a dying, barely flickering flashlight was bright. But once you step out into the light of day, once you step out into the sunshine on a day where there's no cloud to be seen in the sky, you realize what true brightness is. And in the same way, a person might think that they're good. They might convince themselves that they're, they're good, that they're very moral, until he sees what goodness really is what moral goodness really is, and the only way to know what pure, undefiled, true goodness really is, is for a person to behold the goodness of God. And John, the Baptist, had seen the goodness of God. He had examined himself under the light of Scripture, and he had seen the stain of sin that soiled and corrupted him. And he knew of himself that he was no Savior, that he was not the Christ. Rather, he knew that he needed a Savior and that he needed that Savior constantly, constantly. The life of John the Baptist actually gives us a lot of really helpful insight when it comes to witnessing and evangelizing faithfully and effectively. And I would say that it starts with the same realization that John had here, that he, like all of humanity, was desperately lost, desperately corrupted by sin, and thus needed the grace of God to rescue him. He needed the grace of God to renew him. He constantly needed the gospel, just like we do. Having this understanding kept him humble and gracious. And it does the same with us. It keeps us humble and gracious when we realize how profoundly we need grace. Day in, day out, minute to minute, second to second. So who was he? In John's mind, he was just another person. 
He was just an obscure figure in the desert, a voice of reason and righteousness being used by God for God's sovereign purpose, that being calling out for the repentance of the people in the moral wasteland. Man, the world in our day and age needs people who are like John the Baptist in this sense, who minister in courage and forthrightness. But the delegates aren't done with their inquisition. Let's look at verses 21 to 23. It says, They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So if John isn't the Christ, if he isn't the Messiah, well, maybe he's Elijah, is what the religious leaders are thinking, the priests and the Levites are thinking. Now, this might seem a little bit confusing because Jesus did say of John the Baptist, John himself is Elijah who was to come. That's from Matthew eleven fourteen. So what are we to do with that? It seems like a contradiction. What do we do with the idea that, that John himself denied that he was Elijah, but Jesus said that he was? Well, one possibility, and I think it's probably the most likely possibility, is that the people had an expectation that the Elijah, who would be a forerunner to the Messiah, would literally be Elijah, the same Elijah that was taken up into heaven and never, uh, never spoke of death, rather than them understanding that when it said that Elijah would come before the Messiah, that it would just be one uh, who ministered in the humility and the boldness and with the conviction and the faith that Elijah had. So remember, Elijah never died. He, he was swept up by the Lord and, and taken home, similar to Enoch, uh, whom we learned of in the early genealogies of Genesis. So is it possible that, uh, that the people thought that Elijah would literally return and that John was literally Elijah from several hundred years prior to this point? I'd say it's definitely possible, and it seems like the the most likely explanation for John denying that he was Elijah, and indeed he wasn't Elijah, not the true literal Elijah from the Old Testament, although he uh, resembled him in a lot of ways, and he ministered in the spirit of Elijah. So the religious leaders just move on right down the list. Okay, he's, he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. Uh, let's move on to the next option. They ask him, uh, are you the prophet? Uh, So if he's not these things, maybe he's the prophet, right? Um, And most people think that this is a reference uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Uh, And the Jews had falsely... um, drawn a distinction between this prophet that Moses spoke of and the one who would be our prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah. So notice how how John's answers, by the way, are just getting shorter and shorter. Usually when when you're talking to somebody and and their answers start getting shorter and shorter, it means they're growing in impatience, right? Parents, we know this. You know, your kids ask you, you know, can we go do this? And you, you give them a little bit of an explanation. They ask you again, you give them a shorter explanation. They ask you again, no. You know, just one word, that's that's all it comes down to. And we see that John is doing the same thing. Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. Is he Elijah? I am not. Is he the prophet? No. So we can see that he's, he appears at least to be, coming, uh, to be uh, getting increasingly impatient with all of this speculation about who he is. And I would say that the reason is because he didn't want the attention on him. But this delegation, they've been sent to get some answers. And so far, they're, they're just drawing a blank. And so they repeat the question they start with, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? It's almost like they're like, just, just give us a hint. Just give us something to go back to the Pharisees with. And I love the way that John answers. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, you remember how he repeatedly quoted Scripture as a means of silencing the devil. 
Uh, John the Baptist does the same thing here. He quotes from Scripture, quoting from, uh, from Isaiah, saying, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And as he says, this is who says this, this is, this is what Isaiah said, these people know that. But it's almost like he's pointing out to them that they haven't understood the text, that they should have understood But isn't it interesting that John would just refer to himself as a voice? Our text earlier referred to Jesus as the Word, right? NRK and Halagos, in the beginning, was the Word, right? Our earlier text referred to Jesus repeatedly as the Word. And now we see John the Baptist referring to himself as a voice. Well, what does a voice do? It makes words known. See, John knew who he was. He had a clear understanding of of who he was because he had a clear understanding of who Jesus was. The verse that he's quoting here is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is not a verse that is focused uh, on or which gives honor to the voice. It simply refers to him as a voice. So John doesn't say, I'm that voice, you know, I, I'm, I'm the, the, the important voice that you see in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm the, I'm the one that you should be paying attention to. No, he simply refers to himself as a voice. This verse from Isaiah gives a picture of a herald who comes to a town or to a village or before the people, before the king gets there, making sure that there is nothing in the way of the king that would prevent him from coming through. No obstacles, no dangers, nothing to prevent the king from coming through as smoothly and with as few difficulties as possible. Is there a tree in the way? We're going to take that tree down. Is there a hole in the road? We're going to fill this hole in. Basically, it's a call to repent. It's a call to get any sin that would prevent the the Lord from coming to get that out of the way, to get the sin out of the way. Throughout history, the church has had a tendency to experience what corporations and and learning institutions uh, call mission drift. Mission drift. They, they start out with a, with a very clear purpose, but over time, people, maybe they start finding shortcuts or maybe they find uh, more important things to focus on. And what happens before you know it is that the aim or the goal or the mission of the institution or the learning, uh, the learning place or the corporation uh, becomes something other than it was when it was founded, when it started out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in the corporate world. That's not necessarily even a bad thing when you're talking about uh, schools and, and, and learning institutions. But it is the worst thing in the world when you're talking about the church. So you can't run the church like a business. The, the, the two things are totally different. The goals of each one are totally different. And it is not necessarily bad when a business does it, but it is the worst thing in the world when the church does it. Because the church is certainly no exception when it comes to the tendency to experience mission drift. That's why the Reformation was so important. The church had become like a boat that was supposed to be going to Iceland, but instead they ended up heading toward the southern tip of Australia. And the Reformation was about recovering the original mission getting the church back on track. But make no mistake about it, friends. In our lifetime, the church has not only continued to have this tendency to drift, but it has drifted. It has drifted. Entire denominations, we've seen them over the past hundred years, several of them have gone completely astray from the faith. And entire denominations today appear to be headed away from the faith. But what is so beautiful and and, and comforting, assuring, is to see that historically, every time this happens, God raises someone up. He raises up an individual or a group of individuals, a voice or voices, to call people back 
to true biblical faith, to clear away any sin, to clear away any traditions or ideologies which stand in the way of the Lord God rescuing his people. And in this case, that's exactly what John the Baptist's purpose was, to be that voice whom God had raised up and was using for that purpose. But like I said, we face the same thing in our day and age. And God's purpose for the church is to be that voice. So what about you? Are you willing to be that voice crying out in the wilderness? Because that is what we're called to do and to be as Christians. Not to be a voice of any significance other than the significance which God may in his sovereignty grant. But that was John's role, to to bear witness. And we have to see that it's our role as well. I understand it's easy enough to think, oh, the the pastor, he's the only one that has to do that. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that. Nowhere. It is a command given to every disciple. See, we aren't in the world to draw attention to ourselves. We aren't in the world to exalt ourselves. Rather, we're here. Our purpose is to humbly point people to Christ. And I understand that means saying some really difficult things. But believe me, I understand. I get up here every week and I, and I, and I do it. You know, we, we, as human beings, we want to be loved. We want to be accepted. Those, those are things that, that we feel a deep need for. But if, if we love our neighbor, we have to understand that love means speaking truth. With grace, of course. You know, you don't, don't, don't be mean about it. Don't be cruel about it or harsh about it. But we need to speak truth with grace, even, even if we're scorned for it. Look at it this way, though. At least God hasn't ordained for you to eat nothing but locusts and honey, right? <laughs> but it's better to eat nothing but locusts and honey and to know Jesus than it is to eat the finest foods and not know Jesus, right? See, the tragic thing about this committee that had been sent out to interrogate John is that they were in spiritual darkness, even as they stood in the presence of the brightest spiritual light. So, so watch how John reveals their blindness here. Let's look at verses 24 to 26. Verses 24 to 26. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. When you understand the implications of what John says there, that is the scariest reality in human existence. See, this delegation, is they're so confused. If, if John is this voice crying out in the wilderness, well, why is he baptizing people? By what right is he baptizing people? You know, he didn't have this, this highly esteemed position in the religious community as far as they were concerned. Oh, but he did, didn't he? Because he was sent by God. See, his authority wasn't his own. He, he, he didn't baptize on his own authority. He did it on the authority of the one he was sent to bear witness to. What struck this delegation as odd here was probably the fact that baptism was part of a, a ritual for inducting Gentiles into the Jewish community. But John is out there baptizing people who are already in the Jewish community, calling people who are in the Jewish community to repentance. And we know from Matthew's testimony, by the way, that John was even calling the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders themselves, to repent and to be baptized and he did so because his baptism was, one, uh, was not one which prepared people to enter the Jewish community. Rather, his baptism was one of spiritual cleansing and repentance and preparation for the coming of the Lord. But look at how John points out their blindness. He tells them, among you stands one whom you do not know. Terrifying. That should be terrifying. That should send a person to their knees, to, their, to, to putting their face on the ground, 
Who's he talking about? Well, we know he's, he's talking about Jesus, right? He's talking about Jesus, but these people, this, this committee, they have absolutely no idea who he's talking about. Another great and, and very relevant quote from John Calvin on this. He said, quote, He who does not perceive Christ to be God is blind amidst the brightness of noonday. End quote. See, these men, this delegation, suffered from the same thing that, frankly, people all around us are suffering from every day. And that is that they are spiritually blind. They don't know who Jesus is. And frankly, they don't care who Jesus is. But they don't care for the same reason that a dead person doesn't care if it's raining or if it's 150 degrees outside. This echoes the tragic words that we saw in the prologue about Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. It's from John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. John the Baptist saw Jesus, though. And John knew who Jesus was. And that's why John himself knew what his role was. His relationship with Jesus was the basis of his authority to baptize and to preach a call to repentance. But what I find remarkable here is how quickly John the Baptist deflects any and all attention away from himself. It's not about him. It's not about him. And there's a lot to be said about the quickness with which Jesus was, was referred to by John, with which John, John would immediately uh, throw something out there to make somebody think, even if it might cause him problems to say something. And when I read that, when I see his boldness, I, I think, how can I be like that? How can we be like that? How can we set aside all of our own personal interests and even maybe our own safety without flinching the way that John does? Well, there's only one thing that will cause a person to truly put his own interests aside in order to bear witness to Christ, and that is knowing Christ, understanding that Christ is worthy, that he is preeminent, that he is supreme, beholding his majesty and glory, and Loving him more than we love ourselves, more than we love even our own well-being, more than we love our own safety and security. And, and that's actually what Jesus says, isn't it? He actually says that in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So watch this. Watch how aware of Christ's glory and his own worthlessness John is. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. He continues saying, It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. See, in the ancient world, a servant or a slave would have a lot of very low, very menial, almost uh, degrading tasks to perform. But given how filthy and disgusting a person's feet are, we, we get that, right? Uh, unstrapping a person's sandal was considered below disparaging, uh, that, that nobody should have to do that, should have to do that, and thus was normally done by one's own self rather than by somebody's servant or slave. Uh, there was one ancient rabbi who wrote this. He said, "All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe." End quote. So, so that was perceived as something that was below even the lowest servant. But here's the amazing thing about John. Because he understands the worth of Christ. Because he has beheld the, the glory of God. He doesn't see this task as being below him. He actually sees it as being above him. It's above his pay grade as far as he's concerned. It's something he is not qualified to do. Not because it's too low for him, but because it's too great for him. 
So why would he think so lowly of himself? I mean, does he just have a low self-esteem? Actually, self-esteem is one of those things that gets in the way of evangelism. No, it's because he thought so highly of Christ. Because he understood how worthy, how glorious Christ is. And rightfully so. It's only when we understand who Jesus is that we can know ourselves and our role as God would use us. So do you want to bear witness to Christ? Most of us recognize that we should, but a lot of us struggle with doing it. But in order to do it, you have to have the right attitude. You have to have the right perception. You must see the need for less of you and more and more of Christ. You need to want the lost to love Christ more than you want them to like you. That's a hard one. Do you want the lost to love Jesus more than you want them to like you? See, our, our, I think there are two main obstacles when it comes to evangelism that prevent people from bearing witness to Christ. The first one is the desire to, to be accepted. You might say the desire to please man. And I would urge you as your pastor to put that desire to death. Just put it to death. Mortify it. Because the desire to please man is a yoke. Not a joke. It's a yoke. It's something that makes you a slave. You can't make people happy. When you live for the sake of being accepted, when you live for the sake of being liked and and, uh, of, of pleasing people, you put yourself into a position of servitude, of slavery to their thoughts to their perceptions, to their desires, to, to every whim. That yoke isn't easy. That burden isn't light. And, and I'd say, you know, this is, this is one of the big problems with the seeker-sensitive movement. The whole seeker-sensitive movement is built on the premise, built on the idea that if people like us, they'll like Jesus too. But, surprise, Our neighbor's greatest need isn't to like us. It's to repent and to believe in Christ. So the first reason I think people hesitate to evangelize is because there's an inclination in every single one of us, and I'm no exception, to please man. And so we become afraid of of not being accepted or maybe they'll, they'll say some mean things about us, which don't feel good. I get that. The second reason I'm convinced that people fail to witness about Christ is because they don't think their efforts are going to produce any fruit. They don't think their efforts are ultimately going to matter. And I have no doubt that John the Baptist actually struggled with this himself. We know that from prison, even he had some wrong expectations about Jesus, and he started wondering, was it all for nothing? Was it all a waste of time. But notice that what we're told here in verse 28 is where this took place. We're told that it took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that's significant because when we get to chapter 10, we'll see that Jesus brings him, his disciples back to this place. And this is what we read in John chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. And he, Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John, the Baptist, or the baptizer, was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man, Jesus, was true. And then it concludes with this. Many believed in him there. This is down the road. John the Baptist wasn't there to see this. But there was fruit. And there was a lot of fruit for his ministry. It wasn't a waste of time. And similarly, friends, our our witness is never in vain. The results of of John's testimony, the results of, of, of John's evangelism, and the results of our evangelism are the same. They're in God's hands. They're in God's hands. We can't save someone because we can't open the eyes of somebody's heart to behold the majesty and the glory of Christ. We can give somebody the most logical arguments, the most persuasive arguments in existence for believing in Christ, but that knowledge stays locked up here because their hearts are hard. Only God 
can soften the heart to the gospel. Our witness is never in vain, friends. It's in God's hands. It's in God's hands, and and his word does not return to him void. But faith comes from hearing, and faith is a gift. So our call is to faithfully proclaim or preach the gospel, including the call to repent and believe and to leave the results in God's hands. Because it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. This past week, all these news circuits around the world started reporting about a man from Washington who had gone to an island that was inhabited by a dangerous tribe with the intention of preaching the gospel to them. And the island was so dangerous... Uh, it was actually illegal for him to travel there. There was a travel ban on that island. And indeed, it did cost him his life. But while the world, I mean, if, you, if you're watching uh, the news uh, or, or if, you, if you see this article posted on social media, you see that people are mocking him and scorning him and laughing at him. But while the world does all these things, scorning his evangelistic efforts. I think we can learn something from him. I think we can and, and should commend his bravery and his devotion to witnessing, if, if nothing else, even when the cost was potentially and actually very high. I mean, seeing his courage, seeing his boldness made me really feel like a big chicken when it comes to the times when I've had an open door and I just didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings or I just didn't feel like the time was right and my life wasn't even on the line. How about you? Were his efforts in vain? I mean, from what we can tell, none of those tribesmen were were converted, but no effort at witnessing is ever in vain. If nothing else, the whole world saw the importance of evangelism. The whole world saw what this guy did. Now, most people laugh because they hate the one this young man was bearing witness to, but can God use this to save even one person who sees the story and realizes, man, he believes in something that he felt was worth dying for? Of course God can. And the results of his efforts are in God's hands. Now, you might think that your voice doesn't matter, but let the Lord worry about that. Let the Lord worry about the results. Let's remember that ours is a call to selfless love for our neighbor and bold faithfulness to God, obedience. We all must learn to walk in the light and to bear witness to the light. But this is what it comes down to, friends. Who you believe you are will have a profound impact on what you think you should be doing. Let me say that again. This is very important. Who you believe that you are will have a profound impact on what you believe you should be doing. And therein lies the utter foolishness, the utter disaster of basing your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. No man can know who he is unless he knows who God is. And nobody can know who God is unless they know who Christ is. So the application is twofold. Maybe, if you're like me, you realize that you need to repent of some evangelistic apathy. Repent of having an apathetic, not caring attitude about evangelism. But secondly... Because we know Christ, we know God, and because we know God, we have a role in his kingdom, and that role is to go and tell the world that love has come and that there is hope for sinners. God has made a way, and the name of that way is Jesus. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you that you have unveiled our hearts that we may behold Christ. We were dead in our sin. We had no desire for Christ, no desire for anything that your word would say. 
but just out of your goodness. You gave us life in Christ. And we beheld the cross. We beheld Christ's glory and majesty and goodness. And by your grace, we saw how corrupted by sin we are and how desperately we needed a Savior, a substitute, someone to stand in our place and bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And so we thank you that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life, a sinless life, the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died, bearing your wrath against our sin, taking our sin upon himself and giving us in exchange his perfect righteousness that we may truly stand before you and be innocent. So we thank you, Lord, that you have given us an awareness of all this. And we pray, Lord, that as we know Christ, we may know you, And that you would use us mightily to testify to the glory and the goodness and the need for Christ. That those in darkness around us would be drawn by your sovereign choice. We ask, O God, that you would use us to glorify Christ that it would start with our own personal lives, but that that would move outward to our family members who don't know Christ, our friends who don't know Christ, our co-workers who don't know Christ. And teach us, O Lord, to do so humbly, leaving the efforts, leaving the results of our efforts in your hands, that Christ may be glorified in all things. In his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.